friends, I heard this from one of my friends, uh, acquaintances, vineyard acquaintances, about a lady named Marjorie. And Marjorie uh, lived in a Midwest city, a big Midwest city, and she was, uh, had a pretty difficult life. When she was 15, uh, she had to start working uh, two, three full-time jobs while she went to high school because her dad had abandoned their family a few years before that, and it kind of wrecked their family, and she was a, one of the middle siblings, a little older, but they had a large family, and her mom started drinking, got into drugs, became an addict. I mean, that, that just started caving in, and uh, as time went on, they had less and less money, and they were always, you know, trying to pay the rent, and, and most of the time, what, what they lacked was food, so she started going to work, and she's 15 years old. She's working two or three jobs after school on weekends, and when she turned 18, she just looked at what her life was going to be like because she had all these younger siblings, and, and her mom was, you know, could never be counted on. She was there, but she had, all, you know, just these life-controlling problems, and she just looked at her life and thought, what do I have to hope for? My life is, I got no future. You know how when you graduate high school, people go to college, people start to you know, get serious about jobs, they, they, you know, their, their life opens up for them. Her life was just what it had been, this grinding experience, and she carried the weight of it everywhere. And so one day, uh, Marjorie's walking, one Sunday morning, she's walking down the street, and uh, going past the school near her house, and she'd just been shopping. She's got groceries, and she's carrying these two bags of groceries home, and she uh, walks past the school, and she sees a sign for a church that's meeting in the school, and it has grapes on it, and she thought, that's interesting, and she kind of slowed down and looked at it, and then she heard the music, and she said, I'd never heard music like that in a church, or any church I'd never been to. So she walked in, and she had her groceries, and it was in a school auditorium, so she sat in the back row, you know, and everybody else is up front, and she's back in the back. And she just sat there and listened to it, and then, you know, uh, when it was, the service was over, she went home, and, and week after week, because every Sunday she would go to the grocery store, she would come in with her groceries and sit in the back row, and then one week, she decided to go to church before she went shopping, so she went to church, and then as time went on, uh, she started moving up a little further, you know, an aisle or two, more and more, until she's right up where all the people are sitting, sitting, and she start, gets to know people, and then she starts asking people to pray for her, and then people get to know her, and then one day, uh, my, my acquaintance and some other folks in the church looked at Marjorie, and they said, wow, Marjorie has changed. What is going on? What's happened? So they said, Marjorie, what's going on in your life? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the rest of the story in a minute. But Marjorie, at, that, at the point in her life where she walked into that vineyard church plant, she was a perfect example of what life can be like when you just don't have any hope. When you just, you just don't have any hope. And that may sound sort of extreme, but, you know, in, in one sense, most people are... Uh, or a glass half-empty person, or a glass half-full person, you know, which, like, no, won't ask for, a raise, uh, for you to raise hands and show me, but are you a glass half-empty or a glass half-full person? You know, it's interesting, research says that we are actually hardwired towards hope. We're hardwired towards hope. And you may think, well, if I'm hardwired towards hope, you know, something's broken with my wiring, 
What do you do, for example, when you're a person like Marjorie? And maybe you are hardwired towards hope, but your life is such a crushing mess that it doesn't matter if you're hardwired towards it. There's, you know, this kind of pressure and this kind of, these circumstances just rob you of hope. What do you do if you're facing infertility? What do you do if you're facing unemployment and the bills just keep building up? What do you do, you know, if you look at our country and the craziness that just keeps escalating, election after election, year after year, and the unrest, and people who were close friends have now, you know, I just read the other day, a lady divorced her husband because of who he voted for in the presidential election. Now, I'm, I'm sure that was not the whole thing, but probably that was the icing on the cake. But I know, I, I, I know friends who aren't friends anymore, people that were in our church, who aren't friends with certain people because of that the, the last fall's election and who they voted for. You look at that and you think, that doesn't, that doesn't engender hope in the human heart when you see that. There's lots of circumstances in our lives where you have, if you're in them, you have to wonder, you know, how do I find hope in that kind of a situation? What if you're struggling with a chronic illness or depression or some other kind of mental illness and the medication that you take just doesn't quite do anything but just take the edge off and there's chronic pain or something like that? And the, the, the hardest thing about this is when we struggle with hopelessness is a lot of times it can be a very quiet, personal struggle that we oftentimes hide from other people. And we just carry the weight of the circumstances and then the added weight of the loss of hope. And so I, I wonder what I want to do is, because the resurrection, that, that sounds like, well, this is, not a, this is kind of a downer sermon you got here, John. Can you pick me up? You got all the flowers here and the happy music, and you were laughing before the sermon started. Now you're like bumming me out. There's a Dr. Peter Kreeft, I don't know if you ever read any of his books. He's a, a, a Roman Catholic theologian and professor. I think he teaches at uh, Boston College on the East Coast. But here's one thing he said about hope. He said, in an age of hope, men looked up the sky. They looked up at the sky and they saw the heavens. In an age of hopelessness, they simply call it space. So hope and God are inseparably linked. And that's why the resurrection is such a powerful message to hear anytime. But particularly if, if someone is wrestling with hope, and, it's, and, and oftentimes, like I said, my experience with people who wrestle with hopelessness is it's a very quiet, hidden, private experience. And so, you know, hopefully what you're going to hear today is, is going to offer you some hope and maybe prompt you to respond to in some way to what maybe what God's showing you. So in Luke chapter 24, there's a story in one of the three resurrection accounts at the end of the gospel of Luke. And it's a really cool story. And what I'm doing, I'm going to do is I'm going to sandwich uh, Marjorie's story before and after this story. And it's the story of two men, maybe a man and a woman, we're not sure, who were incredibly discouraged they, they had run out of hope, and they encounter Christ as they're walking from Jerusalem back home. And we want to look at the story and, and see what it has to say. What does the resurrection have to do with hope and how we recover hope when we've lost it? So if you have a Bible with you, there, in fact, there are loaner Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. It's page 735. Here's how it starts. Just a second, I want to make sure I 
stop a certain place here. Okay. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stopped and their faces were downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they didn't see. And I want to stop right there. So this scene starts with these two disciples leaving Jerusalem. After This is, this is the third day after Jesus was crucified. And they've just been crushed. It's, it's hard to imagine how these people felt. But if you've had a crushing disappointment in your life, this was like it. The worst disappointment you could ever experience, this would be in that category. And so they're brokenhearted, they're hopeless, they're discouraged. And you can see they're confused. They're just trying to find their bearings like everything has been turned upside down. And so when Jesus was crucified, what they said was that their hopes died with him. We thought Jesus was going to be the one to redeem us. And the word redeem there means someone who's a slave. And the price was paid for them to be emancipated and set free. And, and they said, we hoped, and, and that, that picture of redemption had to do with all sorts of uh, aspects of their lives. When Jesus did that, we hoped he was the one that was going to redeem us, and now we know he's not. So we don't, we don't even know what's next. We don't know what to think. Now, crucifixion is an ugly, ugly, horrible thing. Those people in that time were used to seeing it. Crucifixion is republic. Uh, it's hard to describe how um, shocking it was when someone was crucified. You know how crucifixion works, but they're, they're, they're stripped naked. Uh, they were mocked. It was, it was, uh, it, it was the kind of uh, public event that you can, you're, you're either shocked by or you're hardened to because it happened enough that people you know, became inured to it. And they, the thing was, as down as they were, they heard these stories that Jesus' tomb was empty. They heard these stories that he was alive. But they didn't believe him, even though person after person started coming and saying they saw angels, they saw Jesus. All these things started happening. But yet their hopelessness sort of blinded them to the possibility that there, there, were, there was something else out there that might offer hope. 
So the next part, let's see, uh, verse 24. Jesus, after they had explained why they were hopeless, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So he reminds them, you guys know what the prophets said about the Christ. And so he starts reminding them of something they already knew, okay? Didn't the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures about himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and then he disappeared from their sight. They asked, him, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So the one thing about hope and hopelessness, it's interesting that, that scientists and research says that we're hardwired towards hope. Meaning God's put something in us, just like neuroscientists, neurobiologists have recognized that children's brains are hardwired to believe in God. They have to be educated out of something that's in there innately. It's like we're, in, we're innately wired towards hope because there is hope. The, the thing that happens, though, as human beings, like, like these people give, us, give a good example, is a lot of times when we're struggling with something, we have these reactions within us that make the situation worse. You know what I mean? That we make choices on top of our experience that make it worse. But it's just like... When, when you're really frustrated with something and, and you choose to give in to your anger, not just to express anger appropriately, but you choose to become an angry person, it's, it, can, it feels empowering to be angry, to, to become, I'm an angry person. I'm not taking your you-know-what anymore. There's something about that that fuels you, but it's an unhealthy kind of fuel. It's a, it's a reaction to the fact that we feel unjustly treated, hurt, victimized, and the way we respond to it, instead of processing it the right way, is we become these angry people. Just like a lot of times when kids are alienated from their parents and they just go off the deep end in reaction to their parents and they just make the whole situation worse. We as human beings, just like Paul, I mean, just like uh, Luke describes these disciples here, it's just really easy to make a bad situation worse because God puts around us these road signs of hope, they're there. God doesn't leave us without a witness. But what Jesus shows them here is he said, I had to suffer. The Christ, well, first he says the Christ had to suffer. And if, if the Christ didn't suffer, there's no redemption because a price had to be paid. And I think Many of us understand what the cross is about, so I won't belabor this point. But the thing about hopelessness is, our reaction to hopelessness all, oftentimes is to, is to avoid it and try to sort of preoccupy ourselves with something else and not face what was really going on that brought the hopelessness into our lives. In other words, we, we are avoiding the pain of it. And Jesus is telling them something here. He's saying, you can't find hope unless you face the pain. You can't find hope unless you 
go to the cross. The cross is a, a very ugly symbol. It's, a, it's an ugly thing, and people would like to find hope without there being a cross. Jesus is saying you can't. Plus, he says, if you don't face the stuff that you're going through that's robbing you of hope, with him, you will never find real hope. You'll just find some manufactured thing that, that won't really enrich your life in any meaningful way, and, it, and eventually it will just add to the burden that you're carrying. And so he showed them three things. When he was raised from the dead, he showed them he had power over everything. He had power over death. He had power over the government that crucified him. He had power over religion, which had, had worked with government to crucify him. He had power over sin. He had power over sickness and Satan. Everything. And the, the thing is, when, when you're losing hope, one of, the, one of the root issues that you face is you feel powerless. You feel overwhelmed. And so when they met Jesus, who had triumphed over death, they found someone who had greater power than the power that was oppressing them. Secondly, he showed them he would be present with them through everything. Because they're walking along the road, mired in their hopelessness and the, and the struggle that they had, and trying to sort it out, and they were going back and forth, and they were looking at the situation and just you know turning it over and trying to make sense of it. But they were doing it just on a human level. And there's, it, it's really good and healthy to talk about these things. But you can see there's a point you can get to in your conversation with just a person. If God's not a part of it, you can't figure it out. And if you don't want to face the pain, you'll never sort it out either. So Jesus was showing them, I will walk with you through this season of difficulty that's making you feel hopeless. Just like he had before. See, that was, that was what they lost, was they lost his presence with them. When he was crucified, they went, God is dead. God is gone. And when he showed up, and they didn't recognize him, it made it even more powerful. I mean, now you may go, how could it be more powerful? They didn't recognize it. Because something was going on inside them that they referred to later, that... They started learning how to recognize, by that experience, they started learning how to recognize when the Lord was around and the usual signs of his presence weren't there. This is one of the biggest growth edges of every Christian is to learn to be attentive to God when it seems like he's not there. That's what they were experiencing. And I can say this last, this season of my life that I'm in right now, the biggest lesson that I've learned and you would have thought I would have learned this long before this, but I don't think we do. I've really, I'm, I'm learning, because I think it's a, it's a, it's a lesson that takes a long time to learn, is that God is in everything. I don't mean he's causing everything. I mean he is in everything. He is there. The question is, do we have eyes to recognize him? I have some friends down in Texas, and, and they're part of a large church down there, and they were asking me some questions about some stuff that was going on in the leadership of their church, and and they were all frustrated, and, you know, uh, and understandably, with, you know, they're, 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 they're part of the lay leadership of this large church, and they're having some problems with the staff, and the staff's having all these problems, and, and nobody's listening to each other. And they were just, you know, they were bouncing things off me, and I just said, okay, you know, I don't, I don't have a lot of good advice, and I'm not there, but I do want to tell you one thing. The most important thing for you to do right now is to ask God what he's doing in your life. What is he saying to you? Because you're really preoccupied with this mess in the leadership of your church, but you need to step back and say, God, what are you saying to me? 
What are you doing in my life? Because that's always the starting place for our lives. That's always where we have to start. So that's, what, that's one of the lessons that they were learning here. He was present, and, and they needed to stop and say, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you showing me? And learn to recognize when their hearts are burning, when they didn't think that God was there. Then he showed them how to process their hopelessness. Not only was his, he, he, did he show them he had power over what caused their hopelessness, and he showed them he would be present with them, but he showed them how to process it because they learned how to verbalize and get all this stuff out and be honest with him. I mean, they were really honest. They, 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 Jesus is there, and they were like almost sarcastic to him. He goes, what's going on? And they, which is a, that's a leading question, you understand? That's not a yes or no question. He was trying to draw a response from them. He knew what was going on. And they go, are you an idiot? You know, have you been living in a cave? <laughs> the last couple of days? <laughs> What's going on with you? You know, knock, knock. They were really sarcastic. You know, sarcasm is veiled anger. They're frustrated. And Jesus just lets it go on. He just draws all this stuff out of them. But at a certain point, he has to be straight with them and say, listen, you guys, the answer to your question is all around you. It's in you, what you already believe. And I promise you, if you're, if you're mired in some hopelessness any moment, maybe at this very moment, God's put the witness to his hope around you. And you have to ask, God, help me see it. Help me to get this stuff out and talk about how I feel. And, then, and, and really, the truth is, I mean, the main takeaway from this is hope is in a person, you know, capital P, the person of Jesus. Hope comes in this resurrected person. And so the rest of the story says when they, uh, they got up and returned at once. So this is in the evening, so it's not a simple trip. They returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized them when he broke the bread. So when they realized that Jesus was resurrected, their hope came back like gangbusters. Boom. All of a sudden, these people that are just brokenhearted and just like they're moping along the road, hope fills them because hope comes in this person, Jesus. And that, you know, to, to some people, that sounds like a cliche. Like, how do you experience hope like that? But the truth is, if you refuse to see the signs and look closely at the signs of hope around you, and they are there, God never leaves us alone. But if, if we don't recognize our reactions to hard things, make it worse. It's always the greatest problem we have. The greatest problem we have is not the circumstances we're in. It's always our reaction to them. It was their reaction to them. He said, you're slow of heart to believe. And see, here's the thing about faith. Faith is, takes this risk of vulnerability. If anybody tells you that they're certain about everything, they're just lying to you. They're lying to you. There's, you know, one of the, one of the, the, the freshman philosophy class questions 
that people have to learn to solve is, you know, you can't even, you, it, it, in epistemology, the study of uh, how you discover truth and knowledge, one of the things people throw out is, well, you can't even prove that you really exist, you know? And for a while, people will wrestle with that. It's really a stupid <laughs> assertion. But freshmen in college, you go, oh, no, I don't know if I exist. Everything I believed, it's all in question now. And they just, you know, and that's like, that, that, that uh, greases the skids to the South Bar campus area real quick. Because <laughs> you're just so freaked out, you know, <laughs> my life is upside down. But we react to things really poorly. We just do. And then we react to how we reacted poorly again and poorly again. And so Jesus comes along and he tries to pull us out of that reaction. And he'll be real straightforward. And he'll say, you're being slow of heart. You're being, it's, it, we believe here. Our mind is part of it, but we, ha- we believe in our heart. And our heart can, our, my mind can't get hurt. My, the thinking part of me is not injured. It's not disappointed. It's not wounded. My heart is. And so that's why when your heart's burned and hurt and wounded and disappointed, you pull back. So Jesus was saying, come on. He's giving them evidence. He's saying, come on, start believing again. Start trusting me again. And he leads them through this journey. And so he, he when they go back to Jerusalem, I, I want to say they become resurrection trail guides. You know what a trail guide is? You know, they take you through nature and they point out where all these cool things are. These, Jesus was, he is the resurrection trail guide. So he walked them through it first, explained to them, look, you know, here's all these things you need. If you believe these things, it's a game changer because it points to the Christ. And at this point, they don't know he's the Christ. And he's kind of like winking every time he says it probably. And then all of a sudden, the breaking of bread, which, which is something that he did frequently with them, they recognize, oh, it's Jesus. And then boom, he's gone. And you think, why did he leave then? That's more powerful, him leaving right then, than if he stayed. Do you see why? Because now they know he's with them all the time. Number one, they know he's raised from the dead. Number two, he's with them all the time. But the cool thing is, they realize, and I don't think at the moment they quite got it, but they went right to their friends and they told them three things. This is what they told them. They told their friends that Jesus had been with them on the road, but they didn't know it, that he talked to them about the scriptures, and he, it, but he was with them in their mess, and then when they broke the bread, their eyes were open, and, this, and everybody who was there, it says, uh, well, the next verse says, while they were still saying this, Jesus appeared in the midst of them. Boom. Reinforcing this idea, we... We're resurrection trail guides. We walk, if, if we will walk through this ourselves, when we stumble across people who are hopeless, when someone you know, lets the cat out of the bag, we, if we're willing to, to, to walk through this with them, because it's not a simple, quick process, and we can help point them to all the signs in their life that Jesus is alive and he wants to be with them, then suddenly hope can break into their lives too. And so they walk through their friends as their friends struggle with the same hopelessness. And they showed them all the signs that, that they had seen. And suddenly, boom, Jesus shows up. 
This is what happens. If we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, if we allow him to walk us through our struggles and we verbalize them with him and with other people, all of a sudden our hope returns and then we begin to be people who walk through hopelessness with other people and hope starts spreading. It's a, it's a crazy thing what starts happening. Maybe that's part of what I've got a little bit of today. So let me, let me finish the story, uh, Marjorie's story, and we'll close. Marjorie is walking home with the groceries, passes the school. You know, she starts going in. We got to this point. She's sitting there. And then wait, all of a sudden, the people have noticed this really depressed-looking person who's been around them and getting prayer. All of a sudden, she just look, looks different. There's this light in her eyes. And they go, Marjorie, what's going on? And as they talk to her, the first thing they realize is none of her circumstances have changed. Her life is still a mess. She's still plugging along, working two or three jobs. She's bearing the responsibility of her mom and her younger siblings. Dad's not in the picture. And so they asked her, what's going on? And what happened to you? And she said, I'm glad you asked this now because months had gone by. She said, I don't think I could have explained this to you before, but here's what happened. She said, I came home. I came home when I met Jesus. She said, I never really knew I didn't have a home. But when I met Jesus, all of a sudden I had a home. And then she said this. She said, everything changed despite my circumstances not changing because now I know I'm not alone anymore. Not just that there's some caring person there, but hope came in the person, capital P. She saw because the gospel shows us that Jesus is risen from the dead. He's conquered everything that's conquered us. She said, all of a sudden, I'm not alone. Because she had people in her life before, but she's, she wasn't alone in the way, she was alone in a way that she wasn't anymore because she met Christ. And she said, I know Jesus now, and it's now much easier to figure out and handle my crazy, complicated life now that I've come home. She said, I'm just home. It's totally different now. She had this hope. She doesn't look at her life the way she did before. So this is, you know, this is this, there's a lot of things we can learn from the Easter story in ways that it, it impacts our lives. But the whole idea of, of the hope that Jesus offers us is one of the most simple, basic ones that, you know, people say, uh, again, research says, people who have hope in their life are healthier, they're physically healthier, they're more resistant to disease and infection, they make more money, they save more money than people without hope. I mean, there's so many benefits to hope. And I just want to encourage you, hey, Adam, why don't you guys come back up, we're going to just finish with that, that I Believe song again. I, I, I suggest to you that you consider this, this idea that the story offers us. If you're experiencing a quiet struggle with hopelessness, it, and, and you realize, I didn't think I was hopeless, but I, I think I have. I don't have the hope I've had at some point in my life. And maybe people around you, you know, people that are close to you don't really know that. They just thought you're a little quieter now. You're a little more subdued, you know. Who knows? Oh, maybe someone said to you, you, you seem like you have the blues. I want to suggest to you 
what this story suggests is that you're not alone. That Jesus is walking along with you. And maybe even as I'm describing this story, maybe not as dramatically as they're experiencing, but there's something in your heart that's like coming alive and burning. There's something that's stirring inside you and you're going, that speaks to me. I want that. And the only way you get it is what Jesus said to those disciples. Because hopelessness starts doing its work. The circumstances, I'm sorry, the difficult circumstances present themselves. Hopelessness sets in and then we react some way. And maybe you've reacted by just closing your eyes defensively to the possibility of life. I was praying this morning and just saying, God, open up my imagination to your possibilities because we all are, are, are somewhat of a prisoner of our experiences. But we have someone who died and rose again and said, I'm, I'm blowing the door open in your imagination about what your life could be like and what life could be like with me. And just like those disciples, I believe if you're here and you're struggling with hopelessness, or maybe you know someone who's struggling with it, this offers you some simple little framework on how you might be able to walk alongside them and help them discover hope in their life. But if you're here and hopelessness is something that you're quietly struggling with, as we sing this song, it's, it's an expression. It's not just words that you're supposed to say. When you say, I believe, it can just be words or it can be from your heart.